Turn over with me to Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> and Ephesians, if, if you've been with me at all for this part of the, since September, you know that we've been spending the time this year trying to get our hands around this thing called the blessing of Abraham. And we started in September to sort of begin the process of laying hold of it. But the process of laying hold of it from Scripture is the process of understanding what a covenant actually is. When God came into covenant with humankind, starting with Abraham, of course, starting with Adam, the first covenant he made was with the first created, being, created human, which was Adam, and then through Noah, restated it, and then through Abraham, restated it again. God's purpose has always been, from the foundation of time, to enter into a covenant relationship with humankind. And then we see that even as we go, if you can, I'll jump ahead just real quick here, give you a little snippet. But if you go to the story of the prodigal son, which is the uh, quintessential story about God's relationship to humankind, uh, one older brother being the Jewish nation, the younger brother being the Gentile nation, um, at the end of that story, God was saying, beloved, I am with you always and all that I have is yours. That is in one sentence, the covenant sentence, where God is saying to us as New Testament people that he is, that from his perspective, all has been given to us. But we have to understand how do we access the things that God has given us? What is our position? If you remember a couple of weeks ago when uh, Pastor Alex and I were doing this small example with us two attacking armies against Joy's army and you know, there was a covenant decision between Alex and I to come in from both sides. When I started to doubt Alex, I started to back up and hesitate and procrastinate and fear and doubt. And so what we have to learn from that is that when I distrust my covenant partner, this, in this scenario being God, it isn't God that stops. Alex is still going. He's still heading for the battle because he's supposed to meet me there. The person who misses out on it is when I distrust my partner, I miss out. And I start doing things that are counterproductive to the relationship. And then I am the recipient or one of the recipients. He's also in battle without my help, which is what God, where God ends up a lot of times. But also, I'm also out of sync. I was supposed to be in that battle and win also. But because I stepped back, of course, I blamed Alex because I'm doubting him. He didn't stop at all. He just was coming in ready to go. My doubting, my inability to really have the right relation, the right, uh, uh, the right soul in my covenant relationship, I started doing all of these negative things and I started getting the negative out of that from my perspective. Do you see that? So when we are in this whole deal with understanding what a covenant is, I'm not really trying to, under although it's great to understand it from God's perspective, and we're going to get there to see what is the world from God's perspective. But most of what we are dealing with right now is our inability as New Testament people in the modern day church, our understanding of this thing called covenant is way off the map compared to what, would, what did Abraham think about it? What would it have even been in Jesus's day when they understood or tried to relate to this concept of covenant? 
I remember a couple of years ago, I, this is maybe more than a couple of years ago now, but I, Tina and I, you know, we were on this journey, if you remember from, this is way back now, from 1 Corinthians 13, the love, cha- the love uh, chapter. Uh, it says in the end of that, that there are three forces in this natural, all of, all of creation is built upon three pillars. What are those pillars? Anybody remember? Faith, hope, and love. And so we went through this journey, probably two or three years or so of this journey, where we were discovering what was faith really? From a Bible perspective, what was it? Right. Then we went over and discovered what was this hope thing? Right. And then we kind of went, okay, but Lord, it does, the greatest of these is love. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't really know if I understand what this thing called love even is. Because I, I remember saying to Tina several times through a year's time there, I said, like, how do you learn love in a loveless world? You know, I'm from the business world, you know, business world doesn't have anything to do with love. It's shark eats shark, you know, may the best man win. All of these kind of ways of doing business, that's okay, because everybody knows they're swimming in a shark tank. And so it's fair for everybody. But that doesn't mean we're ever going to learn this concept of love, honestly giving ourselves 100% to another person, like from God's perspective, God has never had a self-focused thought, not ever. It's almost like you would say God is unaware of his own existence. Now that's not true, of course, because God obviously knows he is God, but he's never has any conscious reality, like living in a sensory deprivation tank. You have no sensation of your own being because he's never been anything but absolutely perfect. It's never been too hot, never been too cold. He's never been hungry. Those angels have never been singing too loud. The bass hasn't been up too high. The treble hasn't been too low. It's never been too hot, never been too cold, ever in God's existence. So he's never had a reason to think about himself. So what does he do with all that massive brain power of his? Do you know what he does? He thinks completely about you. That's what love feels like. So imagine then us trying to figure out in our world where, you know, every, all the forces in our world are trying to get me to focus on myself. How do I feel right now? And then turn that all the way around to understand what is the opposite of that? Every now and again, I get this thought that I should be nice to somebody else, but then I go on to look after myself again. Unless we pay attention to that three seconds when you actually thought about somebody else, you're going to miss it and not recognize it. And the Lord said to me at that time, was he says, you have to, you know, uh, where I'm, I'm not even near my notes, but I'm probably not going to get there anyways today. And so, he, so I was, at the same time in the ministry, this is sort of what was going on in the background. Remember we were talking about, you know, you judge others the way you are yourself. Right. Romans chapter uh, two stuff, you know. And so, uh, which was a deep revelation to try and grip onto. But at the same time, I'm realizing that if I'm not a loving person, then, uh, you know, excuse me, let's flip it around. The reason that I am not recognizing love in the world around me, this is going to be a tough one for me at the time anyways, you'll probably get this one. But at the time I'm realizing, well, if I don't recognize love in the world around me, that must mean, help me Jesus, I'm not a loving person. That's bad, eh? But at least I got it. At least I was willing to stare at my own navel long enough to, or sniff my own armpit long enough to realize that there was something wrong here. 
But that set me on a journey then to begin to try and get my hands around this whole thing, only to discover that at the very basis of what I believed was the key to the New Testament church going from here till whenever Jesus comes back is the blessing of Abraham functioning, actively functioning, you know, like the, the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power, in the release of dynamic transformational power. When you are in the kingdom, you don't have to carry a t-shirt that says I'm in the kingdom because the power going forth out of your life is going to be magnetic. That's the advantage that the early church had over the modern church. This reformed church that we've been seeing become alive over the last four or 500 years. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, they started with the guy who knew how to walk on water and raise the dead and pay his taxes by going fishing. They started with that guy. Now there's no doubt of what it means to be a person who is kingdom-minded person full of the blessing of Abraham being manifoldly expressed in an, in an extraordinary way all around their life. And then he says, you can be like me. So a whole bunch of guys, maybe well, 11 or so, they decided they were gonna try it out. And then when they started walking that way, they realized that they could do the same things that Jesus did. And why they called us Christians was because we were acting like Jesus acted when he was here. It was a familiar thing. Now we call ourselves Christian. I don't even know what that means anymore. We're trying to, what are, who are we emulating? And that's what we're going to talk a little bit about that today as we can grab a few moments for it. The point of the matter is that when we go down this road or, or the journey that I've been on my own life, and I'm sharing that now with you, is that I'm recognizing that love equals covenant. Right. Now you can love somebody that you are not in covenant with. So there is actually a moment when you enter into covenant with God himself. But I'm gonna share with you today that although the modern church has told us that you did that when you prayed a prayer one day when you were 12. The problem is covenant isn't really covenant unless it is a conscious, willful, adult, consensual decision to do so when one, you don't really understand what you're doing or two, you uh, aren't old enough, some of us making decisions when we were very small children, we really didn't understand what the dynamics of the relationship really was. And so I think we went through again a hundred years, I've shared this with you before, from the, for, the, for the 20th century, the, 19, the, the numbers beginning with 19, that we go, have gone through this whole century with Jesus coming back tomorrow. So the key of the equation was, buddy, the, the ship is sinking, you need to get in the lifeboat and get going. There wasn't, in the sense, a sense of time that was necessary for us to open up the, the, what does it really mean to get into the kingdom and really look at what are these forces rather than saying everything is accomplished the minute you pray a prayer one day and you're done from there, just go home, the Mercedes will show up in the driveway and everything's gonna be peachy keen for the rest of your life. Instead of realizing, man, let's take a real closer look at that. We're gonna do a little bit of that today as you, as you flip in your Bible. So what I want you to see there 
in Ephesians chapter 5, as you remember, this is where Paul is describing what we thought was describing a marriage counseling lesson, but he wasn't really doing that. He was using marriage as the metaphor. What he was actually talking about was Christ's, or the churches, the ecclesia, the gathered together ones, as they relate to Jesus and how that works. And you can see from that, it says that Christ is the husband. He is the head in that relationship. So if you are wondering, and many people say nowadays that Christianity is not a religion. Now everybody can say what stuff ain't. The problem is finding out what it is. And so this would suggest to us in this scripture that Christianity is not a religion. It's a marriage. And that marriage is between Jesus, the husband, and us, the wife. This is the part that's, that, that I was hoping worship was going to go on till 2 o'clock so that I wouldn't have to share this part. It says, wives. Oh, jeepers. Can I get a couple of big guys just come and stand right here before I share this? It says, wives, obey your husbands. All the guys go, woo woo. But see, that, that's it's why it's comical. You go to other places of the world or other times in history, and they'll go, that's right. All the guys would stand up and say, that's how this goes. Now, I'm not saying that we should go back to some of the oppressive times that we have shamefully in our history. The problem is, is that we need to realize this isn't a marriage course. This is a, 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 a explanation of how the church works. And it says, wives, church, obey Jesus, your husband. Not sort of if you want to obey or if you feel like it or obey him. And this is like completely countercultural to us. I don't want to obey anybody. I don't even like that hundred, that one zero zero sign going down. I don't even like that sign because it hems me in. What if I want to do what I want on the highway? What if I feel like not, I want to go by what I feel like. I don't mind sometimes going a hundred, but I want the freedom to go 200 if that's, but no, 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 no. No, we're, we obey the rules, right? But in our culture, the concept of obedience is, even as we look at why we are going to struggle, I'm not prophesying we're going to struggle with it, but let's say you may be having a difficulty with today's teaching. Doctrinally, of course. The whole Protestant church, the reason they call us Protestant, we kind of make the emphasis in the wrong way, it's Protestant. We were given that name by those which we protested against. And so, I'm not saying I'm a Protestant. I don't think I am a Protestant. I'm not sure what a Protestant is, quite frankly. But we came out of rebellion. Now that is, can I tell you, it's not the son's fault if he rebels, it's the father's fault. But it's, or or it's a partnership between the father and the son that create rebellion. And so if we don't do it right, we create rebellion. And so, but nevertheless, not that I'm looking for blame, because everybody has blame in this area. We're going to struggle with the concept of obey. <clears throat> Just carte blanche. Because it's been in our DNA since the beginning. 
So what I want you to do is, if you could, just so that I can share the, the point of today's teaching with you, I want you to go to Matthew chapter 28. Because I'm going to show you something that has been confounding the, ch- the modern church for quite some time now. And that is when you're coming now to, the, to the Matthew chapter 28, so that you can, you can find the map of where you are in the Bible. Matthew tra- chapter 28 is the end of the book of Matthew. And we are going to go to the last few verses of the end of the book of Matthew. So we are at the end of the end here. As, we, as Matthew goes from here, we jump from the end of the book of Matthew to the first chapter of the book of Acts. I know there's a bunch of other gospels in there, but just so that you know how to draw the string here, you would go from Matthew chapter 28 to Acts chapter 1. So it's not long after what Matthew is saying, uh, recounting here, that Jesus was going to be ascended into heaven. He was saying the last stuff he was going to say on this planet. Okay? And what we're going to refer to here is what's called, in, in our modern world, it is called the Great Commission. So this is now Jesus telling us what he wants to do, what he wants us to do before we leave this planet. And this has been a, um, a, a sort of like a, a plumb line for us here at, at Light City Church to discover what exactly is it that Jesus was telling us to do. So he said, number one, go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of every nation. And so this is now, this also became very confusing, which we have, we've covered all this that the gospel that existed at that time was not Paul's gospel, which is Jesus died on the cross for your sins, right? That was not a readily known expression of what the word gospel meant at that time. It's, it's, it is, if you go to Matthew chapter 24, it says this gospel of the kingdom. If you go to Matthew chapter four, it says Jesus went all about Galilee preaching and teaching the gospel of the kingdom, uh, which we're not going to cover right now, but the, the point of the matter is, is that that gospel, how, first of all, the mystery of believing and that believing controls the whole world. And how do you be transformed in what you are believing, which is Jesus's foundational message in Mark chapter four. So number one on our journey of really discovering what Jesus was talking about and what caused the book of Acts to be the book of Acts What caused the power of the kingdom to be transferred from Jesus, the originator of it, to his disciples, and on and on and on? What they they were living kingdom powerful lives. That's how the church ended up spreading throughout all the, the known world at that time. One was this thing of the gospel had to be preached, and people had to make disciples. Right? So if you take a look around here, we're very focused on transformational model, which is how do I change what I believe? And two, an environment that really promotes people, supports people, empowers people to make that journey. And so then number two, Jesus says, go and what? Baptize, the, baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now we've discovered here as well, that this concept of baptism isn't taking a shower or getting wet or jumping in the lake and having fun, although all that's part of it. The concept of being baptized is the deliverance from self. And deliverance of self, as we've, now we've done all of this, we've tape series and all this, if you haven't been with us for it. The deliverance from self really talks about three things. One, who provides for me? 
two, who protects me? And three, who loves me or who esteems me or gives me value? Realizing that the problem that we, are all, that we have all dealt with is the problem of sin, what we call sin, which just means we do stuff wrong. But when you do stuff wrong, what happens, you've, you did this when you were like six or seven or eight years old, because sin is only sin when you know that it's sin. You don't, you're not sinning when you're, when you're two years old and you, you, know, you push the food off your little, little high chair. Even though that's a really bad thing to do, they're doing that because that's what two-year-olds do. It's not until you get to be six or seven or eight years old when mommy says, don't eat the cookie, and you eat the cookie, and you know you did the wrong thing. And all of a sudden, you sinned. What happened out of that sin is that you became, and this is very profound because it's only happening in a six or seven or eight-year-old, but you become, you sense, a, you, you experience a sense of weakness, vulnerability, and you're, the fact that you are alone. Up until that point, little children don't even know that they are separate from their parents. They don't have that, that identity. I am, because they look out of these eyes and they always see mommy and daddy there, whatever, however their family structure works. So they don't have that personal identity. It's only at this point that they have this, I'm separate from everybody else. And they, become, they have this sense of feeling very alone. And what, causes, and what they do out of, what we do out of that, we've gone through this before, is we begin to create masks to appear to be strong, invincible, and loved, or honored is better, or meaningful. I got, you know. And now this thing here, this mask, is what we refer to here as the creature. <clears throat> We develop an alter identity, a personhood, a, the person that you see in front of your eyes is not the real Ian. The real Ian is who Tina knows. The person who you see is just this amazing preacher, this king of the world orator, the best you've ever, I mean, at least I try to give you that impression of myself, uh, or I used to, I don't much do that anymore, but the... You create this mask that you want everybody to see because the worst thing that you, want to you would ever want to feel is weak, vulnerable, and alone. Yes. And so you create all of these uh, illusions. What you're dealing with when you get water baptized is you discover that God, in fact, is the one who provides for you. God protects me and God is the... I don't, it doesn't matter to me if you don't love me. I am filled on my love tank because I know God loves me. Yes. And so you're, not that it's not nice that people do nice things for you or protect you or whatever, but I, you don't need any of that. When you actually get through this properly, which is what this is all designed to do, this is where you are getting the bride that is, that is prepared without spot or wrinkle. As we get rid of all of these things, we, uh, we get rid of the creature basically. And I come back to the person I was originally designed to be. Now, how does that all fit in? So does everybody, does everybody track with me so far? That's probably not news for anybody that, that if you've attended Light City for a little while. So our journey for the ministry here has been, one, we want to discover what is the gospel of the kingdom. Then two, how do we actually get, get rid of self? Because self is the person that we desperately need 
You can't just get rid of self. You can only get God provides for me, God protects me, and God loves me. When you get these, the creature just disappears because I don't need him anymore. I forget to put on my masks because I don't feel I need them anymore. And all of a sudden, self is gone. Now, the key to that whole journey now, after 15 years of ministry, is today. Because if you go back to Matthew chapter 28, it says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of every nation, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Here we go, you strap down? And teach them to obey those things which I have commanded you. This is where the huge conundrum comes in. A conundrum that is so big that there is a teaching in the earth today that says Jesus lived in the Old Testament and we don't listen to Jesus anymore. Because Jesus said, you have to, help me, obey. Now we know we live in the age of grace. And so there is no obey in that formula because it's okay if we don't obey, which means you don't have to obey, which means when Jesus said obey, he must have been kidding. Or in the Old Testament, or there's another explanation, and that's the key explanation. Mm. And that is, if you go up to Ephesians chapter 5, you discover that wives in the New Testament are supposed to obey their husbands. You see, what Jesus is talking about here is he's talking about the relationship between himself, the husband, and his church, the bride. Now, teach them to obey. Now, that word is maybe a little bit lighter than obey because it, isn't, it doesn't quite work in, the, in obey. It really means to keep or to observe or to guard or to make sure that you take care of is what that word means that is there uh, uh, translated in your Bible as either observe usually or keep or obey. They all work. But the, the issue of the matter is that he is instructing us to, that you have to do things. And it's, pr it's probably funny for us because we're not even familiar really with this concept that we think the person who gave us the most commandments in the Bible was Moses because he gave us 10. <laughs> Did you know that there are 1,050 commandments in the New Testament? That's a bit more than I'm even comfortable with. And if you take a look at Jesus and just categorize them, I, I see them categorized as maybe 15, maybe 20, maybe 25, maybe 30 commandments that Jesus gave us. Can I, shall I read you a few? Do we have three minutes? Just so that you get the idea, Jesus actually commanded us to do things. But he didn't command us to do stuff on the outside. He commanded us to do things that are better cap captionized as things on the inside. Now, this list that I have here has got 38. So let me, I'll just give you some examples of them. Uh, oh, wow, I'm way back here. Okay. When you stand praying, forgive, you must be born again. Remain in me and I'll remain in you. Let your light shine before men. Settle matters quickly with your adversaries. Get rid of whatever causes you to sin. Do not swear at all. Do not resist an evil person. <laughs> give more than is demanded. Love your enemies. Please, uh, give to please God, not to be seen. Uh, pray privately, not to be seen by men. 
then this is how you should pray. So he tells us how to pray. Uh, fast without fanfare. Do not store up treasures in heaven. Do not worry about your needs. Do not worry about tomorrow. Most of us kind of blow that one. Place God first. Do not judge. Guard what is sacred. Ask, knock, seek. Uh, care for those in distress. Care for those, excuse me, enter through the narrow gate. Watch out for false prophets. Exercise spiritual power. Do not despise childlike believers. Do not exalt yourself. Settle disputes between believers in this manner. And he talks about how to do that. Do not oppose other Christian groups. Wow, we could learn that one on Facebook. Have complete faith in God. <laughs> do as the Samaritan did. Love one another. Do this in remembrance of me. You should also wash each other's feet. Be merciful. Go and make disciples of all nations. Obey what I command, and you must be ready. Now, that just is one list of, because you can get all kinds of these throughout the, uh, the Gospels. You'll recognize from there that most of these things Jesus is commanding us to do, you can't tell whether I'm doing them or not. These are things you personally know about. Like when, I'm sta when I stand to pray, forgive. Well, how do you know if I've forgiven? You don't know that. I'm the one that's going nah, 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 on the inside and yeah. paying absolutely no attention to it. You see that? And so what Jesus is talking about here is a husband and wife relationship, an intimate knowledge between two people where Jesus is saying, the stuff I want you to obey is stinking important stuff. And what we've done with this is that we have said we live in an age of grace, and so we don't obey rules anymore. We don't obey stuff we've been told to do anymore. And we have this great grace conundrum. Can I tell you something? John chapter 1 tells us that inside of Jesus, grace and truth dwelt simultaneously. Yeah. Jesus was not a contradiction unto himself by being filled with grace and truth like this civil war that we have in the earth today where the word of faith people, the truth people fight against the grace people. The, and all we have are legalists on one side and hypocrites on the other side. How many of you say that's, I don't think that's really how we, you know, as we mix the hypocrites and the legalists together, all of a sudden we get a beautiful church. Is that how that works? No, that's not how that works. It's not one side compromising and another side compromising. These two things are simultaneously compatible. They can coexist at one time. How the heck do they do that? Can I tell you how you do that? You do that in covenant. Because covenant is an environment. When Tina and I got married, I said, I'll take you right now the way you are. I'm not looking for you to change at all forever for, from now until eternity. I love you the way you are right now. So I put no burden on her to change in any way. That's grace, right? Also, Tina is in, is in love with me, and so she wants to get married to me. And so because I love her, one, I, I have grace completely towards anything that she does. I'm not even keeping score. And two, because I love her, I want to get better and better and better at being her husband. The reason I wanted to be her husband is because I wanted to serve the vision that God had given her. If I want anybody to be close to Tina serving her vision, I want that to be me. And that's why I entered into that. Now, now, that's easy to understand, right? I mean, uh, if, if Ian was a, per, was a good person, which he may or may not be, but if that was the right relationship that I had, one, I have grace towards her, which means I require nothing of her, 
And two, she has a desire to serve me because she loves me. And so she wants to grow as best as she, on her own desire. I'm not making her grow. She's growing because she loves me and wants to serve my life and serve the call upon my life as best as she can. Yes. So Tina is experiencing grace and truth at the same time. And she's not being forced into either one of them. She's not legalistic. She's not lawless. She's not hypocritical because she's growing in the midst of this perfectly yes. developed environment, horticultural environment for that seed to grow and flourish and grow and flourish. If we both have that, where I am desiring to love her and give grace to her, she's desiring to love me and give grace to me, we're both growing to be the best people that we possibly can be every single day, seeking after God, seeking after wisdom, reading all the books, doing all the work in order to grow as best we can because we so desire to be a better husband or wife to the other person. Does that, does that not seem like, yeah, that, if they have that relationship, they've got a great relationship going on. How many of you can see that's crazy awesome? Again, Ephesians chapter five, that is our relationship with God. Now, God obviously isn't working on his game right now to, in order to be a better God to me. What I need to do is I can certainly receive his grace. I can certainly receive the permission from God to never grow and just sit here in my muck for the rest of my life. Should you choose to do that, God is totally okay. He put Jesus on the cross when you were a lot nastier than you are today. And so we can totally receive that grace. But the other side of the equation is, what I want to be able to do is, I want to be able to grow as an individual. I want to be able to get skillful in my life. Not so that I can serve my life. Not so that I can learn how to manipulate you guys a little bit better. But so that I can serve God better. Because if I truly love God, like I love Tina, I want to get to be the best person possible to serve Tina. How much more so do I want to be the best person possible so that I can serve God? That doesn't sound very complicated, right? That's like Paul was saying, when people start making this stuff complicated, you know that ain't God. This is not real complicated. The problem is, is that we have lost the hinge pinning of what the New Testament was all about. So I'm gonna finish with this one quick story for you. And so when you're dealing with this, this teach them to obey, it's talking about teach them how to function inside of a covenant. Because obedience in the covenant is not forced or oppressed or insisted upon by your covenant partner. Matter of fact, God will let people go to hell if they would like to. He doesn't want them to go there, but he's not going to force them not to go there. And so when we are coming into this relationship, if we understood that what we were being offered through this journey of discovering that believing is the key, how to change what I believe, become a disciple of that process to really become a transformational person. Through that transformation, dealing specifically with protection, provision, and love issues that we all have, by the way, getting to the place where when I get to the altar, when I come before Jesus, I'm not coming to Jesus saying, you're rich and I need your money. I'm not coming to him saying, you're a healer and I need someone to protect me. I'm not coming to him and saying, I'm lonely and miserable and can't sleep another night by myself, so I need, I need a spouse. I don't feel any of those things. 
because of these issues actually being contended with and won. Now, when I am going to God, I'm not going to God because of what he can do for me. I'm going to God because of what I can do for him. Knowing that in my covenant relationship, as Tina and I come together, Tina and I did not come together, I am, I am you know, big powerful Zeus and you're nasty little worm. And you need me, so I'll just, I guess I'll do you a favor. That's how we often relate to our relationship to God. If you know anything about Tina, you know that it's probably much the other way around. When we came together, we were not coming unequally yoked. We both had things we were bringing into the relationship. We were going to do the very best that we could for one another because we believed in what we could do together. That's what our relationship to God needs to look like. But when you try to come in, like what our, what our modern churchianity has convinced us of is that it all happens when you pray a prayer at an altar, you don't even realize you are what the gospel of the kingdom is. You don't even know you're entering a transformational process. Instead, you think every, everybody's getting married to Jesus the day that we met him. That's not how this works. There is a readiness that comes to our lives, a, a, a chaste bride without spot or wrinkle that is coming into this place here where I'm not going to God because of some selfish desire. I'm not getting married because of some soulish need that I have. I'm getting married because I want to give myself to the other person. And then when I'm in that relationship, I know I'm the bride. I know I'm the wife in the example. So I'm giving myself like Tina did to me. She gave herself to me knowing that I was going to become her head. Up until this, Tina was her own head. And so what we have to realize is the real strength of the kingdom of God in the earth today are people who have come to this place who are now ready to say, Jesus, I am entering a covenant with you and I get the fact that I'm the wife. We're not going to spend the next 50 years of my life fighting about whether I'm going to do what you ask me to do or not. Those days are gone. I don't need to fight with you anymore because I already know you gave me everything even before we got married. I already am this person who knows God provides for me, protects me, and loves me. Now I'm bringing my whole healed self into my marriage with God. Can I tell you something? The ability to give yourself 100% into the relationship, losing yourself as Tina did. As it's not, well, it's, it's, see, our culture is so messed up. People get married and don't take the last name of their husband anymore or hyphenate it. Where two people coming in, two people going out. You know, it's not like that. Not in God's eyes. Not in God's eyes. In God's eyes, the, I walked into that room, Ian McDonald. I left that room, Ian McDonald. Jesus doesn't change. The person who loses their life into this equation is the wife. Tina came in, Tina Rossi, she left Tina McDonald, a completely different person. Does that make sense? What we are doing is we are losing ourselves into this relationship. But totally because we trust. That's the deal. If you can't trust if you haven't done this process correctly, if you, if you cheated, cut a few corners, then you get down here to the time when you're at the altar and, and God knows 
No, 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 no. I know you got a whole bunch of I needs. I'll take you, God, as long as. So here's my extra little list. That's not covenant. That's an agreement. As soon as there's anything less than 100%, it's not a covenant. Here's an example for you. In, 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 in Matthew chapter 19, we have this guy who is probably the best guy in the Bible for you and I to read about. And the guy's name was, we know him as the rich young ruler. We didn't even give him a name. But he's known as the rich young ruler. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, how might I have eternal life? Yeah. Now we interpret that as how might I go to heaven when I die? But that was not what the rich young ruler was asking Jesus. He was asking Jesus, how do I have this life like I see you live? This ultra-powerful, completely at peace, tranquil person when all of Rome and all of the Judean leadership wants to kill you, you just wander around like you haven't got a care in the world. Yes. Every now and again, run into some sick folk or dead folk and raise them from the dead. Come on. You got taxes to pay, you just send your buddy fishing and pay the taxes. Yeah. I need accountants and lawyers and, and a whole organization in order to try to keep me afloat, is what the rich young ruler is thinking. He said, I, I don't want to live that way anymore. I want to live like you live. That's what he was asking him. Jesus turns to the rich young ruler and says what? He says, well, you need to obey the Ten Commandments, you know, the ones that Moses gave you, which tells us that Jesus believes in obeying the Old Testament, BTW. And he says to the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler says back to him, I have done these things since my youth. And so Jesus says, okay, then one thing you lack. And what's that one thing? He says, I need you to go get all your stuff and sell all your stuff and give it to the poor. And the rich young ruler, I'm taking off an offering. And the rich young ruler says, wait a minute. I, he went, he left grieved. Why? Because he had great possessions. You see, Jesus asked him, he wasn't asking you, because it goes on to later to say, this is how you enter the kingdom. So hopefully, the entering the kingdom doesn't mean you have to give all your money away. But it does mean you have to be willing to. Yeah. Yeah. Because the kingdom is a covenant. And when you enter into a covenant, you give away everything you have. Yeah. If you cannot give away everything you have, yeah. then you are not ready. <laughs> so this is the harsh part. Because then it goes on to even say, Jesus actually says this, what the rich young ruler asked for was eternal life. Jesus goes on, after the rich young ruler had left now, disgusted and offended, Jesus said, it's hard for a rich man, what? To get eternal life? Because that's what he asked for. What does Jesus say? Excuse me? To enter into the kingdom. So what Jesus is talking about here is something different, although the same thing, eternal life is the kingdom. Life like God has, it is the kingdom. But Jesus is answering if you are not ready to give 100%, that means you can't enter the kingdom. Yeah, I thought we entered the kingdom when he prayed a prayer that one time, joined that church way back then. And it's like, no, 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 see, that's the problem. Because the kingdom of God is not in word, it's in power. The kingdom of God, life like God has it, is a powerful life. A powerful life looks like the blessing of Abraham flowing in upon through your life. The only problem, especially for us North Americans, is that it costs us everything. Consider the woman with the issue of blood. Now, back in that day, today we'd live things very differently, but you could not go out in public if you, had, if you were bleeding even naturally bleeding if, like a woman would. 
And so for that time, you had to stay home. Never mind this woman's problem, which was she had a, an issue where her system didn't stop. So she knew if she left her house, she could be stoned. Uh, not, and, and the bad kind of stoned, I mean, like, you know, killed with rocks. <laughs> They're both bad, by the way. <laughs> modern days, we have to clarify these things. But she knew. She, was, she literally stepped outside of her home knowing that if God did not protect me, I, I wasn't coming home. Not only did she leave her house, the record of the account was that she came to Jesus who was surrounded by a crowd of people. To touch blood at that time would make you unclean. So if she would have been found out in that crowd, she would have been stoned for making all of these other people unclean. They would have taken her out of town and beat her to death, basically. Because she risked everything to get to Jesus. You see, the metaphor here, what Jesus is trying to show us, is that the kingdom of God, entry into the kingdom of God, requires this careful process. That's why he's told us, you have to preach the gospel, make disciples, you have to deal with the self-issue, the masks, the creature, and then once you're done this and you have become nothing in the sense of, I don't need anything. I'm not craving after anything. I don't need anything. I'm not manipulating my world. I'm in the flow of what God is doing in my life and I am completely peaceful and content there. At that time, I know when I'm coming to God, I'm not coming to him because I need anything because I don't need anything. I'm coming to God because I love him. And out of my compelling, that's why I tell guys, guys, the dumbest thing in the whole wide world is for a guy to get married. Especially nowadays when most stuff is available for a lot less than 100%. The only reason guys would get married, should get married, is because they can't help themselves. They're so in love with the person that they're marrying they can't keep themselves from saying, I do. That's how we should do this with God. God does all of this. I'll provide for you. I'll protect you. I'll love you. You don't need this part. But if you want the power of the kingdom in your life, if you want to be a witness that's a witness of God in the earth, if you want to be part of what God is doing to resurrect the mess that is in our world around us, the only thing that is going to do it is the kingdom of God. The only thing that can solve the mess that we are in right now is the kingdom of God. God has you here in the kingdom for such a time as this. As we prepare ourselves to really make that decision that says, God, you know what? Wherever this goes, I'm ready to be your wife. That means, you know, when, when Tina married me, I could have took her off to the, the, the end of nowhere. 
which I did actually. So <laughs> thank you for reminding me of that. And she, and she would come, right? Her life is in my hands. And she willfully did that because she loves me and trusts me. Can we do that with God? Do we have that kind of a relationship that we have built with God? That God would be asking us to be in this place at this time, in this process of slowing down what, what used to be a 15 second prayer and turned it into a 15 year process of discovering what it actually means to be ready to say, Jesus, I am ready to obey all things which you have commanded me. Put your hand over your heart and say, Holy Spirit, thank you for revealing how the power of the kingdom becomes accessible to my life. It has always been my desire to serve you and that my life would be used however it could be used to further your purposes, to serve your kingdom on this planet. So Holy Spirit, you're my discipler. You're the one who can guide me into the truth. Help me to understand what it means to be in covenant with Almighty God so that when that time comes, I'm 100% ready to jump in with all of my heart. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen.